a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Brian N. Larson, Associate Professor of Law at Texas A&M University School of Law. We will discuss his article, Endogenous and Dangerous, which will be published in the Nevada Law Journal. So welcome back to the program, Brian. Thanks, Brian. It's good to be here. Yeah, no, I'm glad to have you on. And this paper is a really kind of interesting follow-up to the previous co-author work you came on the show to talk about. Uh, but to better situate readers who, or listeners who might not have heard that episode or might not be familiar with some of the terms and concepts you're using in the paper, I, I wonder if you could talk about what makes a citation to authority in an opinion endogenous and why do you think endogeneity is something that we ought to be paying attention to in judicial opinions and maybe even potentially a problem, at least in some circumstances? Sure. So um, an endogenous authority is one that the court finds that the parties haven't briefed. Uh, and this terminology actually comes from work of Alexa Chu and Kevin Bernardo on what they call citation stickiness. So for them, a sticky citation is one that appears in the party's briefs or one of the party's briefs, and then it appears in the court's opinion. And a citation is super sticky if both parties cited it, and the court also did. Um, but uh, as the study that I did shows, and as their study from, uh, I was published last year, and I think their data were from 2017, as that study showed, um, it's quite common for courts to cite cases that neither of the parties have cited in their briefs. Um, and those are what we call endogenous. They're endogenous in the sense that their origin is within the court. Um, and not from the outside. Why might this be uh, a concern when we see endogeneity in judicial opinions? I mean, why is this something we should be studying? And why is it something we might think is something that could potentially be a problem? So uh, I think overall sort of gross endogeneity, if you want to call it that, um, is, uh, is maybe not as big a concern as endogenous case uses are when the court is using a case as a legal analogy or for a policy argument. Um, and I spend a lot of time in the paper describing how essentially all legal arguments are defeasible arguments. Um, they involve putting forth a set of, of uh, premises that support a conclusion and then expecting a dialogical response from either the opposing attorney uh, or in the mind of the judge who has to evaluate those same arguments. And th that response comes in the form of critical questions. Uh, and these critical questions uh, spawn more arguments, right? So if I use a legal analogy, for instance, and I say, uh, you know, in, in case um, Smith against Jones, uh, the parties exhibited these characteristics and the court found for the plaintiff. Um, in this case, the parties exhibit these characteristics and therefore we should have the same outcome. That's, that's a pretty straightforward kind of structure for a legal analogy. Um, the thing is that uh, there may be reasons not to see those cases as, as analogous, right? There may be relevant dissimilarities between this case and Smith against Jones. Um, and it's the location of that relevant dissimilarity um, that arises from a critical question and itself spawns another analogical argument, right? Like what's, what's a relevant similarity between these two cases? 
So in the course of normal briefing, um, if the moving party uh, makes an argument and relies on a case, uh, the opposing party has an opportunity uh, to counter that argument, to, act, to raise the critical questions that I talk about in the article, uh, and to weaken or entirely defeat the argument that the argument's proponent uh, has offered. But if the judge uses an endogenous case, neither of the parties, and indeed no one outside the judge's chambers, has had an opportunity to interrogate that argument using the critical questions. And because arguments by legal analogy and policy are much more complicated and face a lot more critical questions, they're more likely to be mistakenly employed um, with an endogenous case than are arguments that are rule-based or deductive. So my point is that especially in cases uh, where the court wants to cite uh, uh, an opinion to use as part of a legal analogy or a policy argument that the court should allow the pa parties to brief it, uh, or at least to discuss it at oral argument. And I proposed a couple of different ways that that could work. If we see judges using endogenous cases, what if those cases are just there because they help the judge reach what the judge thinks is the right conclusion? And why can't the parties just go ahead and fix the problem on the back end? I mean, if the judge got something wrong, surely they can, you know, petition for reconsideration or they, they could just appeal. I mean, we have appeals all the time. Why isn't that sufficient to solve the problem? Well, that imposes a lot of time and cost, um, as you can imagine. So uh, motions for reconsideration are very rarely granted in the federal courts and um, appeals are very rarely successful. Um, so, in what's more, the judge, uh, once the judge has uh, reached an opinion, right? So they've they've reviewed the briefs, they've reached a decision, and they've written their opinion. Um, the odds of a reconsideration actually changing their um, point of view from a cognitive perspective are very low, uh, because once you have once you have a good sort of solid decision in mind, you really only look for evidence that confirms it, and your attention is drawn to that kind of evidence. Um, that's, I think the cognitive science literature pretty amply demonstrates that judges may or may not be sort of have superpowers to help them overcome those propensities, but I don't think the evidence suggests that they're particularly good at it compared to the rest of us human beings. So I guess the idea then is, you know, it's really hard to unscramble the egg. Once, once the judge reaches a conclusion, you kind of can't solve the problem if we think there is one. That's a much more elegant and metaphorical way of putting it. Yeah. In the course of writing this paper, you conducted an empirical study of endogeneity. I wonder if you could describe your study and what it was intended to identify, and maybe also talk a little bit about how it's different from other studies looking at similar questions, including the Chu Bernardo paper. Sure. So um, maybe I'll start with the second question. Because uh, most studies that look at um, citation stickiness, to my knowledge, I think Chu and Bernardo were the first to use that term for it in 2020. Um, most of the previous studies would just describe the factual circumstances, right? The court cited things that the parties didn't. Um, and most of the previous studies, including uh, Chu and Bernardo, um, they would count a case as a uh, citation if it appears in a brief one time or opinion, opinion one time or a hundred. Um, so basically you could do the study by looking at a table of authorities uh, for a brief, for instance, um, and then just seeing which of those cases showed up in the opinion. 
Um, my study, uh, the, the, the nucleus of my study is actually on a different subject. It has, it has ultimately to do with how lawyers and judges do analogical reasoning. But uh, in order to do that, what I had to do is segment the arguments into smaller chunks. I couldn't just say, I'm going to look and see whether this opinion is cited anywhere in a brief for opinion, uh, opinion. I wanted to see how the judge or the lawyer writing the brief for opinion was using the case. Were they using it to support a rule-based argument? Were they using it to support a, uh, an argument by legal analogy? Were they using it to support a policy-based argument? So another article that I have coming out this spring reports the principal findings of that study. Um, and, you know, not surprisingly, it found that um, judges, uh, well, let's say lawyers, lawyers use uh, rule-based arguments uh, with case precedents about twice as often as they use legal analogies and legal analogies about twice as often as they use policy-based arguments. Uh, so it gives you a sense of kind of what the, the conventional shape of a lawyer's argument is and what um, the, how the judge's responses differ from that. So that study, for example, showed that judges were less likely to use legal analogies and more likely to use rule-based arguments. Um, and it also showed that there were some distinctions between how um, the briefs of prevailing parties and the briefs of non-prevailing parties use those kinds of cases. Um, but you'll have to read that article or maybe interview me about it to find out more about that. But one um, uh, sort of side effect, I guess, of that study was that I had the endogeneity data for all these cases, right? Because if I'm counting how lawyers use a case each time they um, use it in an argument segment in their brief, and then again, how the judge is using that case in the judge's opinion, if at all, um, I have the ability to cross-tabulate those two sets of data to see where the, um, where the judges are or on, are not using the same, uh, citing the same opinions that the advocates have. Uh, and that allowed me to sort of look at the question of stickiness from a perspective that it hasn't been viewed before. Because in my study, if a judge used, let's, we'll use copyright as an example, because my data is from, it relates to copyright fair use. So um, it'd be very common for a court to cite a Supreme Court decision like Campbell against a Cuff Rose um, at different spots in the court's opinion. And in each argument segment where the judge does that, the judge might cite it for a different purpose. It might cite it for a rule in one place. It might cite it for a policy argument in another. And in the third, it might um, cite it for a combination of purposes. And so I counted each of those. And that allowed me to look at the way that judges are using the arguments and then how judges are using arguments based on cases that the lawyers either did or didn't cite. It's a little bit sort of deeper or richer um, than the, the studies that have happened before. It also just takes a lot more time to do this kind of work because you can't, you know, tally things up based on a table of authorities at the beginning of a brief. You have to read and, and code the qualitatively code uh, the opinions of the briefs. So would it be fair to say then that the kind of premise here is that we ought to be more potentially concerned about endogeneity in some circumstances than in others? Like, for example, if we see endogeneity, for example, in the judge's statement of the uh, standard review, that might be less problematic than seeing the judge uh, citing endogenous cases for dispositive questions that will kind of determine the outcome of the case. Sure, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And in fact, the the article has what I call a hierarchy of endogenous badness, 
where I talk about um, reasons that judges should especially try to avoid using endogenous cases. Um, but then there are other instances where it's less of a concern. And I think that that's, that's probably reasonable in most cases. I don't think there's a hard and fast rule here. And I don't see um, you know, completely banning endogenous citations as being a particularly realistic uh, request. And so I'm not making that request. So you mentioned that your study looked at at fair use decisions as sort of the the sort of sample set that for 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 the study. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose fair use and how you actually like kind of on a nuts and bolts level went about evaluating the ways that lawyers and judges use different kinds of authority in that context? Um, in order to determine whether or not particular uses were or were not kind of the kinds of endogenous uses you're most concerned about? Sure. So copyright fair use, there's a couple of reasons that um, first I decided that I wanted to use a body of federal law because um, I knew that I could get access to briefs um, using PACER or I think what our school still had at Bloomberg Law gave me access to all the briefs that I wanted um, I've got to use money to actually pay PACER if I download too many at once. Um, so I knew I'd be able to get the briefs uh, in, uh, at, in the federal courts. Uh, I wanted to restrict the study, the initial study, um, to one body of law, because my sense was that a different body of law, a different legal discipline, might show different um, conventional efforts to use cases. So a federal you know, uh, products liability class action, for instance, um, might show different propensity for advocates to use cases in certain ways and judges to use cases in certain ways. I'd like to look at those other environments, but my sense was that if they are different, looking at multiple disciplines at once is going to result in a lot of noise in the data, uh, where the, the central tendencies are going to reflect something that's not true of either um, of those disciplines. And so I wanted to focus on one discipline. I chose copyright fair use, frankly, just because I'm interested in it. My my um, my practice work was largely in copyright, and so it was an area that, that I find interesting. And I also thought that my research assistants, who are going to help me do a lot of this coding, would find it interesting as well. As you know, there are a lot of quite interesting stories in copyright fair use cases. As a copyright scholar, I would also note that fair use decision making is disproportionately, I think, driven by policy considerations and analogical reasoning in ways that maybe not all legal questions are. Was that a feature or a bug in the study? Well, I mean, it's going to be a, it would be a feature of any intentional decision to restrict the um, data that we analyzed to one disciplinary area, right? I mean, anytime you do that, what you may be witnessing is only what's going on in that disciplinary area and not what's going on uh, in others. Um, on the other hand, if you mix them, then you lose the distinction. And what you get is a, an average or a central tendency that doesn't reflect any particular disciplinary area. And so I think it's a feature, not a bug, but it does leave open the door for future research. So um, in fact, I, I have a grant proposal in with some colleagues here at uh, Texas A&M to uh, try to um, automate the coding process of opinions and briefs using my coding scheme, but using natural language processing tools um, so that it would be possible to replicate this study 
using other disciplinary fields within the law uh, without having to spend, you know, uh, probably a thousand hours of research assistant time and my time um, doing the coding. When you ran the study and analyzed the results, what did you find? I mean, like how endogenous were copyright fair use decisions? In the cases that I looked at here, the gross endogeneity uses in these opinions was 29%. Uh, so that reflects a 29% average across the 55 opinions that I studied here. Um, the case uses in them, um, uh, 71% were sticky. They came from the lawyer's briefs and 29% were endogenous. Um, and what's interesting, I think, about that is that there isn't a huge um, difference between the endogeneity with which the judges use cases, um, depending on whether uses rules or an example or a legal analogy or a policy. So judges use endogenous cases in that way, 29% um, of the time for deductive or rule-based um, reasoning, 28% of the time for legal analogy or example-based reasoning, and 22% of the time for policy. So they're all fairly similar, right? I mean, they're not widely divide, divided. Um, and in fact, those averages, the differences between them are statistically insignificant. So th what that says to me is that judges feel as safe or as comfortable um, using endogenous cases, for example, in policy arguments, as they do for rule arguments or rule-based arguments. And that is problematic given that example or legal analogy and policy-based arguments are much more vulnerable um, to defeat using the critical questions that the article describes. So I know the study was primarily focused on whether judges were using endogenous cases, but were you able to draw any inferences about why they might be using endogenous cases? In other words, sort of what's motivating judges to look outside the briefs for alternative authority or alternative examples or alternative analogies? Well, I think there are a couple of things that might suggest, you know, that you might expect, right? One is that you might say, well, with what depth did the parties brief um, the issues. And if the parties didn't brief the issues deeply enough, the judge might have to look outside the briefs um, for opinions that support the decision that the judge is going to make. Um, the other possibility is that um, parties with more resources, or an other possibility, I should say, is that parties with more resources might be able to afford more extensive research uh, or more careful thinking. I, I hate to use size of a law firm, for instance, as a proxy for um, quality of representation, but it does tell you something about the party's resources um, in some cases. Again, it's, it's a very sort of coarse proxy. Um, but uh, in general, what I found is that the, um, there's a moderately negative correlation between the depth of treatment in the briefs and the proportion of endogenous citations. In other words, if the briefs treat the subject more deeply, if they make more case uses in their analysis of the question, it's slightly less likely um, that the opinion will have a higher endogeneity. Um, if, uh, and that's really the only correlation that I found. Um, so for example, the, the size of firms um, and the, the party's resources appeared to have very little effect on endogeneity whatsoever. Uh, but that depth of briefing 
did. And it sort of makes sense, right? I mean, one of the examples I discuss at length uh, in the article is a case where the party is devoted, I think, something like um, something less than a 500 or a thousand words, but parties between them devoted such a small uh, space to um, fair use. And the court had to determine whether to grant summary judgment on that issue. Well, most courts are not going to resolve that issue without stepping through the four fair use factors. Um, and they're, so they're going to use a little bit more depth when they treat it. And, and in that case, I think the judge basically had to uh, brief the issue soup to nuts. The parties didn't, didn't do it effectively. Um, but there are other cases where the parties did brief the subject very deeply and the judge still went out and cited a whole bunch of cases that the parties hadn't. Um, so I, I don't think that it's the depth, as I say, it, it has a moderate um, negative uh, effect or moderate indirect effect on endogeneity, but it doesn't, it doesn't trump it. It's not good enough just to have a, a thorough or a good brief. There's something else going on. And I think the way to find out what the something else is, um, is to be inside the courts. Uh, I can't tell that from the text. I can't see what's lying behind um, the robes, so to speak. I don't know if I want to look behind the robes, but you know what I mean. Um, I, I can't see what's going on in the judge's chambers. Uh, and I think empirical study of that environment uh, could help us understand why judges are choosing to do it uh, if it's not just a case of the parties uh, inadequately briefing the um, the issues. You think, I mean, especially from a policy perspective, part of the kind of driving factor or kind of driving reason why this crops up is that the attorneys briefing the case are briefing it in light of their client's interest. And the judge might also be considering alternative interests, like maybe the public interest or kind of broader um, interests of an industry as a whole, or you know, who knows, that they might be incorporating concerns that the parties don't necessarily have an incentive to push. Uh, I think that's very certainly true. And I, so I think the judge has to take that into account and has to consider how ruling on the issue will affect future litigants. And in fact, uh, there's a really interesting article from Maggie Gardner at Cornell. It's in the NYU uh, Law Journal from December, I think, called Dangerous Citations, where she makes an argument that courts shouldn't be citing other trial courts, um, that there's a, a series of pernicious effects that arise from um, that practice. And I think it's, it's the same kind of concern, right? If a trial court judge um, draws an analogy between two cases, makes a decision in the instant case, and then articulates a kind of covering rule for that distinction, it's quite possible that another court picks up that rule statement as if it is a rule, as if it's somehow legally binding, when in fact it was just one judge's take on one um, set of facts. And I think Professor Gardner's approach essentially looks at some of these situations and says, well, it looks like um, you know the judge or the judge's clerk went out and found a bunch of cases and reviewed them very superficially and tried to draw rule statements from them that they could use to help resolve their case um, and that they didn't examine the similarities or dissimilarities in depth. Um, so she didn't study citation stickiness or endogeneity, but I think if you put these two studies together, you can see why there's a danger involved we have such a surfeit of court opinions that are available through legal research um, that it becomes very easy to find something that's at least superficially similar to the current case. 
Um, but as some other empirical research has shown, depending on which research platform you're using, you, you can get very different results, right? I mean, many times the top 10 results on Westlaw are going to differ quite a bit up from the top 10 results on Lexis. Um, and the court's, the, the party's interests and the concerns of future litigants shouldn't be governed by those sort of coincidental case locations. And I think the remedy to that is simple enough. Let the parties brief it. If the court thinks that some, or argue it, right? I mean, I think arguing is actually better than briefing. If the court um, thinks that some case that the parties haven't cited has a serious policy implication on the instant case, the parties should be able to comment on that. And then the judge can make their decision. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. I mean, you do propose a solution or kind of a range of solutions to the endogeneity problem you you identify. You know, how do you think courts ought to approach it? And why do you think your suggestions, you know, which suggestion do you think would be the best? And why do you think your suggestions are better than potential alternatives? Well, I think the best the best approach would be if, and I think this might be a little bit idealistic, right? But the best approach is that the judge and or the clerks um, do their research they identify cases they think may be applicable to the current problem. Um, they compare that to what the parties have cited in their briefs. Um, and they ask the parties to uh, appear at oral argument prepared to talk about how the cases the court has found uh, might affect the decision. Um, and ideally, the court does that before forming a tentative opinion about what the outcome should be. Uh, now, the problem is, of course, it's, I mean, there's a hundred year old literature about how judges start forming hunches quite early early in litigation. And I think there's been a compelling argument made that um, the managerial courts that we have now are so involved with discovery in the parties before they even get to many dispositive motions that their views may be colored by that as well. So, I mean, I don't know that we can escape the cognitive um, biases that a judge may carry into dispositive motions. I don't know that that's possible. But to the extent that the judge can say, oh, look, I'm not going to try to make a decision until I, what I hear what the parties have to say on these cases, uh, that's ideal. And I've suggested oral argument instead of briefing, in part because I, I suspect that oral argument should be a little bit ex less expensive for the parties, uh, right? I mean, you're not spending quite as much time editing a brief when you're, writing, when you're doing an oral argument. My guess is that much of the same kind of research and preparation goes in uh, to, um, and that's an empirical question, right? But how, the, much of the same research and preparation goes into preparing an oral argument um, as, as a supplementary brief, um, but there's a lot of work that doesn't go into uh, an oral argument that does go into a supplementary brief. So that's what I propose as sort of principal solution. Um, and uh, because oral arguments, and this this is anecdotal on my, on my part, but I, I suspect that there's, um, I suspect there's a way to empirically assess this. Um, oral arguments often are quite disappointing, um, uh, even on motions like motions for judgment, um, in part because the parties don't really know what the judge is interested in in advance of the argument. And this helps to remedy that, right? I mean, the judge sends a signal to the parties saying, this is what I want to talk about in oral arguments, and they show up to talk about that. Um, at the same time, there are plenty of judges who prefer not to have oral arguments on these kinds of motions, and they're not going to like my proposal. Um, and an easy sort of alternative for them is to step back and ask for the supplemental briefing. And I think that should always be optional, right? If the parties don't want to spend the money to provide the supplemental briefs, 
Um, that's fine. In fact, one of the criticisms that I received from a reviewer was that this would somehow um, make it harder for parties with uh, reduced means uh, to get justice, right? Because now they'd have to do this additional briefing. Uh, but my perspective on that is, if you uh, don't know that the court is going to use one of these endogenous cases and it runs against you, um, then you're going to lose and your alternatives are a motion to reconsider or an appeal. Um, they're much less likely to work and they're much more expensive than writing another you know, 10 page brief to the court explaining why the court shouldn't use a particular case. One thing that struck me about reading the paper was at least some aspects of your proposal sort of had the almost like the error of what amicus briefs do in in cases where they're filed. Yeah, I think there's some I think there's some um relationship there and I think that's true particularly with regard to your earlier question about the um I mean the the concerns that the court has about how its decisions are going to make policy um because and they're going to be cited in the future um as precedents and and I think that's one of the reasons we see amicus briefs, right? I mean, that's probably the main reason we see amicus briefs. Uh, so asking the parties to take that stance, uh, once the court has identified cases that the parties haven't, that the court thinks may be applicable, probably functions in a similar way. Now, of course, amicus briefs may function in other ways as well, right? I mean, sometimes they don't really take a side. They just ask the court to consider a series of issues that the parties aren't briefing. Um, but there's no reason the judge can't ask the parties to do that. Similarly, just as the judge, I mean, in certain contexts can uh, appoint an expert uh, to advise the court uh, when the parties seem to have sort of dueling experts. And this is a similar kind of case. I don't, no, I don't know. I suppose, I mean, another alternative to my problem is to say the judge could invite briefing by an amicus, <laughs> but I, I don't know that a judge is doing that. I guess there's probably cases where that's been done, but I'm not familiar with them. Well, so Brian, in closing, going a little bit outside the scope of your article, but it, it was something I was thinking of as well when I was, was reading it. I've seen a lot of people in the past kind of talk about the appropriateness of academics weighing in on pending cases and, you know, sending articles uh, to judges to look at without necessarily alerting the parties to them. Um, to, to what extent do you think this kind of endogeneity concern that you that you discuss in your paper is sort of generalizable to other kinds of kind of persuasive authority like law review articles mm -hmm. and so on that judges might consider in the course of coming to conclusions and maybe even occasionally uh, cite to in in their opinions as examples of of authority because it's at least my experience that many practitioners are reluctant to rely on authorities of that kind, maybe more reluctant than than some judges are. Hmm. Um, there are there have been some studies on the use of secondary authorities in judicial opinions, and I'm not as familiar with their contents actually. Um, I I would consider it more concerning if a judge reaches for a secondary authority. So I, I mean I'm and again I'm making this sort of traditional distinction between. Primary authorities they're actually, that actually make law, right? They are law as a statute or regulation uh, or a case makes law in a sense, um, as opposed to law review articles and treatises and the like. Um, I think it's more concerning for a court to use a secondary authority than a primary authority as an endogenous citation 
because the range of possible secondary authorities is enormous. Um, and I mean, you have written and read law review articles, and so have I. Oftentimes, the, psych- the authority for some kind of factual assertion in a law review article is fairly shaky. I mean, it basically points to another law review article that said it was the case and calls that good enough. And I think uh, for courts to rely on those is probably less wise uh, than uh, relying on the trial court opinions and other trial courts. Um, and it's unwise not to allow the parties to to uh, argue those authorities before they're used, because heaven knows there's some wonderfully opinionated uh, law professors out there, but they're um, like me, probably. Um, but their their opinions maybe don't warrant too much weight. <laughs> well, I'm I'm looking forward to the first court that cites to this paper as as an authority, or, or maybe maybe your subsequent one as well, which I look forward to reading. All right, that sounds good. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show, Brian. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Brian. I really appreciate it. Now that I'm almost 
out of my mind.